Amen. Let us turn to what might be called the Christmas Lord's Day. Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 215 in the Smaller Forms and Prayers book. Lord's Day 14, page 215. And we'll be uh, saying the answers together for 35 and 36. I'll read the questions. So we begin with question uh, 35. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. Question 36. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. It's the confession at Faithful Summary. Let us turn now to the very Word of God, John chapter 1. And uh, for any who were here uh, last Sunday evening, we looked uh, at John 1 to 13 with Lord's Day 13. We now look especially at verses 14 to 18 for Lord's Day 14. Uh, But we'll read from verse 1. And we'll read uh, now the whole prologue, it's often called here the prologue of the Gospel of John. We'll we'll read it all, verses 1 to 18. John 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This, is, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So far the reading of the Holy Word of God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does the Old Testament tabernacle have to do with the Incarnation? of Jesus Christ. What does a building have to do with a birth? Well, the connecting point is this, the special presence of God. God is everywhere present, but God has chosen to reveal His special presence and to dwell in a special way in particular places at particular times. And in the Old Testament, that was especially the tabernacle and then the first and second temple and then it was in the very person of Jesus Christ. And so the connecting point is the special presence of God. And the, the language of our text uh, points us to be thinking of this connection. The language in verse 14, when uh, we see the English word dwelt, the Greek word there is, uh, is a word that we don't use as a verb in English. It's the word tent, pitched a tent. He tented among us. And it's, uh, it's the very same word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament was used to speak of the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. This is now the special presence of God. No longer uh, a building. Uh, the tabernacle is uh, a, a better uh, picture in some ways than the temple because at least the tabernacle could move around. Uh, but it's not just the tabernacle that could move around. It's not just the temple that was built in one place in Jerusalem. It's now a person. It's now the person, Jesus Christ. God's special presence was seen in the sacrificial temple, in the tabernacle. But it was never seen in the person. It was never seen personally. It was never lived and worked out and accomplished until Jesus Christ came. God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. So that is our theme. Simply stated, really straight from verse 14. God has come among us in the flesh. And then we're gonna, we're gonna look at three realities about, uh, who God is and, and how God came. And those are our three points. God who is eternal, God who is gracious, God who is self-revealing. So we begin with this, God who is eternal. Jesus was truly man. He was the Word become flesh. D.A. Carson uh, once put it this way, that this was, quote, the boldest way, end of quote, for John the disciple to declare the full manhood of Jesus Christ. This was no mere appearance. Uh, this was no vision. This was no apparition. This was 
This was man in the flesh, flesh and blood. This was the boldest way that this truth of the uh, physical appearing of God as man could be stated. Uh, And so what do our confessions do? In, In question answer 35, the catechism follows the bold language of Scripture. And here how bold and clear the humanity of Jesus Christ is confessed in question answer 35. Jesus took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature. We say it as boldly and as clearly as we can. And we say that we say it that way in our confessions because that is how the very word of God has revealed this truth to us. Now, Jesus is truly man, but Jesus is also truly God. And so Jesus did not come into this earth in the same way that anyone else came. And at this point, the confessions uh, and scripture often goes to the virgin birth. That's the focus of Matthew and of Luke. Uh, We speak about Jesus didn't come in the same way as anyone else. Jesus came through the miraculous conception, the, the virgin birth. Uh, but what does John do? Uh, do you know the, uh, uh, the, the, the famous, well-used, uh, often used illustration of the Gospel of John uh, when compared to the other three Gospels? Uh, they're, they're looking up at the mountaintop and the great truth of Jesus Christ and what he did. And they're looking at the same thing. But the other three Gospels look from one side of the mountain and John looks from the opposite side. And so uh, as John so often does, he speaks about this wonderful truth that Jesus is man, but he's also God, so he didn't come in the same way, but then John emphasizes it differently. How does John emphasize it? John speaks of Christ as the pre-existent one. That's the angle that John gives to us. And in the prologue, we get this, we get it declared in clear enough, but we might call it a hint in verse 15. And so John the disciple refers to John the Baptist. And when when John the disciple talks about John the Baptist, he just calls him John. Because John the disciple never refers to himself in his gospel. So John, John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, some might say, well, is there maybe just a little bit of confusion here? Because, I mean, they were in the womb at the same time. So even though we know from the gospel narrative of, of Luke that, uh, that uh, you know, they, were, they were relatives and they were in the womb at the same time, John was born first. I mean, it was so close. Like, what's going on here? Is something, is something confused? Well, uh, the authors of Scripture are never confused, whether it's about... Uh, whether it's about months or millennia. Uh, and so, no, uh, no, John is not confused. But, but to remove any doubt, let's not talk about it in terms of months. Let's talk about it in terms of millennia. And that is what John does later in giving us the words of Jesus in, in John chapter 8. And so we turn forward to John chapter 8. And uh, lest there be any confusion, any question, any, oh, wait a second, I don't understand. They were, they were in the womb in the same time. Was Jesus born before John? What's going on? Lest there be any confusion, we come to the clear declaration 
of John chapter 8, beginning at verse 55. And Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It is not just a matter of months. It is a matter of millennia. Because it is a matter of eternity. Jesus Christ is the pre-existent one. He existed before John the Baptist. He existed before Abraham. He existed before creation. No wonder John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the pre-existent one. He is true man, born of a woman. but He is true God, eternal God. And that's how question answer 35 begins. That the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God. And so Jesus has always been. So it is that we can say He's true man. Since He's also true God, He's like us except for this. The end of question answer 35, except for sin. And that is what makes salvation possible. And that's what takes us to our second point. God who is gracious. We read this in verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That could be translated grace after grace. If we paraphrase it a little bit, we could we could uh, we could translate it this way: grace replacing grace. Now, what is this referring to? We see that in the next verse. It's referring to the transfer from the Old Testament times to the New Testament times. Now, you say, wait, I don't see the words Old Testament and the words New Testament in verse 17. But we do see this. We say we see came through Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He's the one who in the institution of the Lord's Supper can say, this is the new covenant, the New Testament in my blood. So there's the New Testament. Where do we see the Old Testament? Well, we see it especially in one word, the word law. And at this point, we might be stretching our memories a little bit, but even when we read what we sometimes call the law, uh, but is, is really just one part of the law. When we read Exodus chapter 20 this morning, I asked even our young people to wait for uh, what, is, what is the law and what are different ways that we can speak about the law. And at this point, brothers and sisters, I want to say that if you're a Reformed Christian who has grown up with the healthy practice of reading the law from Exodus 20 regularly, And if you're an English speaker who thinks of law and order when you hear the word law, now those are, those are not, those are not bad things in and of themselves, but it does lead to a confusion 
or it could, because the word law in the New Testament is not always or even usually used that way. What, what, are, what are we talking about? Well, let, let's, let's step back and, and think about it this way. When you are learning about the Bible, the book, and uh, if you are young or if you think back to when you were young, what is the Bible made up of? What are the two basic parts of the Bible? Well, we say the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, what would be the answer to that question if you asked young John the disciple or young John the Baptist? What did Zechariah and Elizabeth teach to uh, the little boy, John, not yet John the Baptist? Well, they didn't teach Old Testament and New Testament. The New Testament was not yet written. But they had all of the Old Testament scriptures and they spoke of a division of the Old Testament into three parts. The Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the law, the writing, the prophets, and the writings. And so you have the law, and from youth, from learning the basic threefold division of the Old Testament that, that the Jews used, from your youth, the first thing you think when you hear the word law, is not moral law, Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, but the first five books of the Bible. And even by extension sometimes, you know, what comes after it, it almost comes to stand for really all of the Old Testament and for Judaism and, and for the, the whole Levitical system and all of those things. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, I think there can be a temptation when we come to the New Testament to take healthy practices like reading the moral law, Exodus 20, regularly, and to, and to think of the law more narrowly than we should as that word is used in, in God's word. So I think it's helpful for us to slow down once in a while and to remember this and to see the, the bigger picture as it were. Now there are times when law is used in that narrow sense. Galatians chapter 3, which we read uh, portion of this morning for those who are here speaks of the law in that narrow sense it refers to Mount Sinai and to the giving of the moral law but in a general way we should think of the first five books of the Bible and, and sometimes even bigger okay. hopefully brothers and sisters this is helpful as we read God's word regularly and hopefully this will be helpful for us right now as we ask the question where is grace which comes before the other grace in the law. So now we go back to verse 16. Grace upon grace. Grace after grace. We're just going from one grace to another. Where is grace in the law? Well, it is all over the law. It is found again and again. Let's go to one example. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And then we're going to look at a few verses from Exodus 34. And we're going here for two reasons. One, because it says something about the veiled revelation of God's glory before the person of Jesus Christ. And two, because it is one of many clear declarations of God's grace in the law 
in the first five books of the Bible. So let's read, uh, let's begin with Exodus 33, verses 18 to 20. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, that is God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then moving to chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. A glimpse of the glory of God. Moses can only see back of God passing, even as Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 can only see the hem of God's garment in a vision. And, and what happens? Well, there's, there's clear reality about sin and about guilt and about the need to confess sin. We might say that's the focus of, of Isaiah when Isaiah sees the, the glimpse of the glory of God, the vision of the hem of God's garment, and Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost! But brothers and sisters, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? No. When we go from the Old to the New, we go from grace to grace. And the grace of God was plainly proclaimed to Moses and to Isaiah and to all who lived before Jesus Christ. It was not seen in the person of Jesus Christ. It was not so gloriously revealed. But it is grace to grace God is the God of grace. And so when you stand before the holiness of God and say, I am unholy, woe is me, God says, I am gracious and I forgive your sins. And this is such that the reality of my grace and salvation in me is clearly proclaimed even before it is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. But now, okay, this is, this is a bigger sermon point. We're working through a lot, but we're almost there. But now, where, where does the glory climax? Where do, where do we see it most clearly? We see it in the very person Jesus Christ. And then in the person Jesus Christ, we see it especially on the cross. Now we go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and it's, it's the, the day of the death of Jesus Christ. 
It's the high priestly prayer as he is about to be betrayed, as he is about to go to that cross. And and what is the language of glory? That glory which Moses could only have a small glimpse of. That glory which Isaiah could only have a small vision of. Where does the glory climax? It climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. John says we have seen his glory. And it climaxes especially at the cross. And so Jesus prays and he says... He says, I have lifted up my eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And there is the glory of God. There is the gracious glory of God. That we are unholy. But from grace to grace and grace that climaxes in grace accomplished in the person who is God, who is man, on the cross. We are saved from our sins. You are saved from your sins. As you trust in God who has always been gracious. Who was gracious before Christ came. Who was gracious as Christ came. Who is gracious now. Repent and believe, trust. There is life. There is life. We have seen His glory. And how does verse 14 end? Full of grace and truth. We have seen His glory. Full of grace and and truth. So here's the last thing before we move to our, our briefer third point. Consider that grace to grace and the grace climaxing in Christ and climaxing on the cross. And then we read, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? It is every benefit. It is my salvation. He is our mediator. And in God's sight, He covers with His innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. So you say, God is gracious. God is also a consuming fire. And I say, yes, God is a consuming fire. But what happens to the consuming fire of God's wrath when you trust in Jesus Christ? Consuming a fire of God's wrath is poured out on Christ for you. How does the birth of Christ benefit me? From grace to grace. The greater grace in the person of Jesus Christ replacing in a sense the already clearly revealed grace which God has always declared to His people. Well, with that, let's come to our third point. God who is self-revealing. The glory of God is indeed seen. And this is something we could not do. We, we could not 
go into the heavens, the eternal heavens, the invisible realm, and, and find God. We cannot get there through our own works, through our own standing, through our own strength. But God has revealed Himself. God is self-revealing. And so through Christ we can see God. Verse 18 no one has ever seen God. Jesus. Uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Okay, so we're not we're we're not going to dig all the way through this, but there's 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 some level of of mystery, and you know God cannot be seen and live, but we see God in Jesus Christ, and and, and how is that that mystery answered? Uh, well, for those who were here last week, it, it comes back to to the same way that the mystery of of how is the Word distinct from God and yet the Word is God? How can the Word be with God and the Word is God? It, it, it comes back to the, the truth of the Trinity. It comes back to the truth of the Trinity. And so, um, as we think about can we see God, can we not see God? It's yes and it's no as we, as we think of the mystery of the triune God. Or if we, if we just say it simply this way, as the Apostle Paul said it in Colossians 1.15 about Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so God is revealed through Jesus Christ. He's revealed personally. It had to be a self-revelation. Because ever since Adam and Eve, we have been separated from God. We have been barred from the fellowship of the Garden of Eden. And we remain in, in, our, in our sins and, and our unholiness. We cannot come before the Holy God in ourselves. But because God is self-revealing, because God has given Himself and shown Himself and lived as the perfect person without sin, now we can see God. And then... It reaches even even the greater level because we have not only the fact that we have seen the glory of God, but we have finally the promise that even if we didn't live on earth at that time, uh, finally we will all see God. Even what's the language of First Corinthians 13, uh, verse uh, verses 9 to 12? Even finally face to face. And so coming before God, coming before God face to face. The, the, the beatific vision, which just means it's, it's from that promise of the, the beatitudes. They will see God. We'll see God face to face. It's not something we could do. It's, it's not something we earn, but it's all because God is self-revealing, because God gave Himself, because God came Himself. And so the God who has always been gracious has revealed His very face and finally will bring all of His people to be with Him face to face. And so it is that whether it was Abraham who knew the grace of God by looking forward to Jesus who was born 2,000 years after, or whether it is you knowing the grace of God by looking back upon Jesus who was born 2,000 years before you, we all we all coming to God, trusting in Him, have the same salvation from the same grace, the glorious grace 
of the one who came to save sinners. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, what great and exalted truths you have revealed to us in beautifully beautifully simple language in in your word in in this gospel that